Chapter 12, Part 2 of The Life of Clara Barton, Volume 1, by William Barton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 12, Part 2, Home and Country. Thus, at the beginning of February 1862, she was called back to Oxford. Her father, who had several times seemed near to death, but who had recovered again and again, was now manifestly nearing the end. She was with him more than a month before he died. His mind was clear, and they were able to converse about all the great matters which concerned them and their home and country. He made his final business arrangements, he talked with the children who were there, and about the children who were away. He was greatly concerned for Stephen, at that time shut in by the Confederate army. Even if the northern armies could reach him, as they seemed likely to do before long, neither Clara nor her father felt sure that he would leave. There was an element of stubbornness in the Barton family, and Stephen was disposed to stand his ground against all threats and all entreaties. Clara and her father felt that the situation was certainly more serious than even Stephen could realize. To invite him to return to Oxford and sit down in idleness was worse than useless and he could not render any military service. Not only was he too old, but he had a hernia. But she felt sure that if he were in Washington, there would be something that he could do. And, as was subsequently proved, she was right about it. There were no mails between Massachusetts or Washington and the place of his residence, but Clara had opportunity to send a letter which she hoped would reach him. She wrote guardedly, for it was not certain into whose hands the letter might fall. Sitting by her father's bedside, she wrote the following long epistle. North Oxford, March 1st, 1862. My dear exiled brother, I trust that at length I have an opportunity of speaking to you without reserve. I only wish I might talk with you face to face, for in all the shades of war which have passed over us, we must have taken in many different views. I would like to compare them, but as this cannot be, I must tell you mine and in doing so I shall endeavor to give such opinions and facts as would be fully endorsed by every friend and person here whose opinions you would ever have valued. I would sooner sever the hand that pens this than mislead you, and you may depend upon the strict fact of everything I shall say, remembering that I shall overcolor nothing." In the first place, let me remove the one great error, prevalent among all Union people at the South, I presume, 
viz., that this is a war of abolitionism or abolitionists. This is not so. Our government has for its object the restoration of the Union as it was, and will do so unless the resistance of the South prove so obstinate and prolonged that the abolition or overthrow of slavery follow as a consequence, never an object. Again, the idea of subjugation. This application never originated with the North, nor is it tolerated there for an instant, desired by no one unless, like the first instance, it follows as a necessity incident upon a course of protracted warfare. Both these ideas are used as stimulants by the Southern misleaders, and without them they could never hold their army together a month. The North are fighting for the maintenance of the constitutional government of the United States and the defense and honor of their country's flag. This accomplished, the army are ready to lay down their arms and return to their homes and peaceable pursuits, and our leaders are willing to disband them. Until such time, there will be found no willingness on the part of either. We have now in the field between 500,000 and 600,000 soldiers more cavalry and artillery than we can use to advantage, our navy growing to a formidable size, and all this vast body of men, clothed, fed, and paid, as was never an army on the face of the earth before, perfectly uniformed, and hospital stores and clothing lying idly by, waiting to be used." we feel no scarcity of money. I am not saying that we are not getting a large national debt, but I mean to say that our people are not feeling the pinchings of wartime. The people of the North are as comfortable as you used to see them. You should be set down in the streets of Boston, Worcester, New York, or Philadelphia today and only by a profusion of United States flags and occasionally a soldier home on a furlough would you ever mistrust that we were at war. Let the fire bells ring in any of those cities, and you will never miss a man from the crowds you have ordinarily seen gather on such occasions. We can raise another army like the one we have in the field, only better men as a mass, arm and equip them for service, and still have men and means enough left at home for all practical purposes. Our troops are just beginning to be effective, only just properly drilled, and are now ready to commence work in earnest, or just as ready to lay down their arms when the South are ready to return to the Union as loyal and obedient states, not obedient to the North, but obedient to the laws of the whole country. Our relations with foreign countries are amicable, 
and our late recent victories must for a long time set at rest all hope or fears of foreign interference, and even were such an event probable, the federal government would not be dismayed. We are doubtless in better condition to meet a foreign foe, along with all our home difficulties today, than we should have been altogether one year ago today. Foreign powers stand off and look with wonder to see what the Americans have accomplished in ten months. They will be wary how they wage war with Yankees after this. I must caution here, lest you think there is in all I say something of the spirit of brag. There is not a vestige of it. I am only stating plain facts, and not the hundredth part of them. I do not feel exultant, but humble and grateful that under the blessing of God, my country and my people have accomplished what they have. And even were I exulting, it would be for you, and not over, or against you, for according to the straightest of your sect have you lived a Yankee. And this brings me to the point of my subject. Here comes my request, my prayer, supplication, entreaty, command. Call it what you will, only heed it at once. Come home. Not home to Massachusetts, but home to my home. I want you in Washington. I could cover pages, fill volumes, in telling you all the anxiety that has been felt for you, all the hours of anxious solicitude that I have known in the last ten months, wondering where you were, or if you were at all, and planning ways of getting to you, or getting you to me but never until now has any safe or suitable method presented itself. And now that the expedition has opened a means of escape, I am tortured with the fear that, under the recent call of the state, you may have been drafted into the enemy's service. If you are still at your place, and this letter reaches you, I desire, and most sincerely advise, you to make ready, and, when the opportunity shall present, which surely will, place yourself with such transportable things as you may desire to take on board one of our boats, under protection of our officers, and be taken to the landing at Roanoke, and from thence by some of our transports up to Annapolis." where either myself or friends will be waiting for you. Then go with me to Washington and call your days of trial over, for so it can be done. If we could have known when General Burnside's expedition left that it was destined for your place, Sam would have accompanied them and made his way to you on the first boat up your river. As it is, he is coming now, hoping that he may be in time to reach you and have your company back. I want in some way 
that this and other letters reach you before he does, that you may make such preparations as will be necessary, and be ready, whenever he shall appear, to step on board and set your face toward a more peaceful quarter. You will meet a welcome from our officers such as you little dream of, unless perchance you have already met them. If you have, you have found them gentlemen and friends. You will find scores of old friends in that expedition, all anxious to see you, would do anything to serve you if you were with them, but don't know where to find you. There are some down on the island, among General Burnside's men, who have your address, but they would scarcely be on our gunboats. There are plenty of men there who have not only your name in their pockets, but your memory in their hearts, and would hail you with a brother's welcome. General Butler came in at Hatteras with a long letter in his possession relating to you, and if he had advanced so far, he would have claimed you. I don't know how many of our prominent Worcester men have come or sent to me for your address, to make it known among our troops, if they ever reached you, that they might offer you any aid in their power. No one can bear the idea of our forces going near you without knowing all about you, and claiming and treating you as a brother. You were never as near and dear to the people of Worcester County as you are today. I have seen the tears roll over more than one man's face when told that Sam was going to see and take something to you, and bring you away if you would come. God grant he may, is the hearty ejaculation which follows. I want to tell you who you will find among the officers and men composing the expedition near you. Massachusetts has five regiments, 21st, 23rd, 24th, 25th, 27th. The 21st and 25th were raised in Worcester, the former under Colonel Augustus Morse of Leominster, formerly Major General Morse, of the 3rd Division State Militia. He is detached from the regiment and is a commandant, or second in command now, of the post at Annapolis. It is he who will send Sam free of cost to you. He is a good, true friend of mine, and tells me to send Sam to him, and he will put him on the track to you. He will also interest both General Burnside and Commander Goldsberg in both of you and leave nothing undone for your comfort and interest. In the meantime, he is waiting to grasp your hand and share his table and blanket with you at Annapolis. So much for him. The other officers of the regiment are Lieutenant Colonel Magi, Major Clark, of Amherst College, Professor of Chemistry, Dr. Calvin Cutter as Surgeon, you remember Cutter's Physiology, Adjutant Stearns, Chaplain Ball, etc., etc., all of whom know me, are my friends, and will be yours in an instant. 
Among the men are scores of boys whom you know. You can't enter that regiment without a shout of welcome, unless you do it very slyly. Then for the 25th, Colonel Upton of Fitchburg, Lieutenant Colonel Sprague of Worcester, Major Cafferty of W., Chaplain Reverend Horace James of the Old South, Cousin Ira's old minister, one of the bravest men in the regiment, one of my best friends and yours too. Captain I. Waldo Denny, son of Denny, the insurance agent. The captain has been talking about you for the last six months, and if he once gets hold of you, will be slow to release you unless you set your face for me. The old gentleman, his father, has been very earnest in devising plans all through the difficulties to reach, aid, or get you away as might be best. He came to me in Washington for your address, and all particulars long months ago, hoping that he could reach you through just some such opening as the present. I state all this because it is due you that you should know the state of feeling held towards you by your old friends and acquaintances, whether you choose to come among them or not. Even old Brine was in here a few minutes ago and is trying to have Sam take a hundred dollars of his money out to you, lest you should need it and cannot get it there. The old fellow urged it upon me with the tears running down his cheeks. There is no bitterness here, even towards the Southerners themselves, and men would give their lives to save the Union men of the South. The North feel it to be a necessity to put down a rebellion, and there the animosity ends. Now, my advice to you would be this. If you do not see fit to follow it, you will promise not to take offense or think me conceited in presuming to advise you. Under ordinary circumstances, I would not think of the thing, as you very well know. I get my privilege merely from the different standpoint I occupy. No word or expression has ever come from you and you are regarded as a Union man closed in and unable to leave, standing by your property to guard it. The expedition is supposed to have opened the way for your safe exit or escape to your native land, friends, and loyal government. And if now you should take the first opportunity to leave and report yourself at your own government, you would find yourself a hundred times more warmly received than if you had been here naturally all the time. So far as lay in the power of our troops, your property would be sacredly protected, far more so than if you remained on it in a manner a little hostile or doubtful. I am not certain but the best thing for Mr. Riddick would be for you to leave just in this way, and surely I would have his property harmed no more than yours. I have understood Mr. Riddick 
to be a union man at heart, like hundreds of other men whom our government desires to protect from all harm and secure against all loss. This being the case, the best course for both of you, which could be adopted, in my judgment, is for you to leave with our troops. This will secure the property against them, they would never harm a hair of it intentionally, knowing it to belong to you, a union man, who had come away with them, and you could so represent the case of Mr. Riddick that his rights and property would be respected by them. He would be infinitely more secure for such a move on your part, while his connection with you would, I trust, be sufficient to secure your property from molestation by his neighbors, who would be slow to offend or injure him. If you leave and your property be unofficially injured by our troops, the federal government must be held responsible for it, and if, after matters are settled and business revives, you should find your attachment to your home so strong as to desire to return, I trust you could do so, as I would by no means have you do anything to weaken the goodly feeling between you and your friend, Mr. Riddick, for whom we have all learned to feel the utmost degree of grateful respect, and I cannot for a moment think that he would seriously disagree with my conclusions or advice. At all events, I am willing he should know them, or see or hear any portions of this letter which might be desired. I deal perfectly, fairly, and honestly with all, and I have written or said nothing that I am or shall be unwilling to have read by either side. I am a plain Northern Union woman, honest in my feelings and counsels, desiring only the good of all, disguising nothing, covering nothing, and so far my opinions are entitled to respect and will, I trust, be received with confidence. If you will do this as I suggest and come at once to me at Washington, you need have no fears of remaining idle. This Sam will tell you of when you see him, better than for me to write so much. Washington had never so many people and so much business as now. Some of it would be for you at once. You must not for a moment suppose that you would be offered any position which would interfere with any oath you may have given, for all know that you must have done something of this nature to have remained in that country through such times, unharmed, and all know you too well to approach you with any such request, as that you shall forfeit your word. Now, what more can I say? Only to repeat my advice, and desire you to consult Mr. Riddick in relation to the matter, if you think best, and leave the result with you, and you with the good God, whom I daily desire and implore, to sustain, keep, guide, and protect you in the midst of all your trials and isolation. 
I sent a short letter to you some weeks ago, which I rather suppose must have reached you, in which I told you of the failing condition of our dear old father. He is still failing, and rapidly. He cannot remain with us many days, I think. This calls me home. His appetite has entirely failed. He eats nothing and can scarcely bear his weight, growing weaker every hour. He has talked a hundred volumes about you, wishes he could see you, knows he cannot, but hopes you will come away with Sam until the trials are ended which distress our beloved country. Samuel will tell you more than I can write. Hoping to see you soon, I remain ever your affectionate sister, Clara. It was beside her father's deathbed that Clara Barton consecrated herself to work at the battlefront. She talked the whole problem over with him. She told him what she had seen in the hospitals at Washington, and that was none too encouraging. But the thing that distressed her most of all was the shocking loss of life an increase of suffering due to the transportation of soldiers from the battlefield to the base hospitals in Washington. She saw more of this later, but she had seen enough of it already to be appalled by the conditions that existed. After Fredericksburg, she wrote about it in these terms. I went to the 1st Division, Ninth Corps Hospital, found eight officers of the 57th lying on the floor with a blanket under them, none over. Had had some crackers once that day. About 200 left of the regiment. Went to the old National Hotel. Found some hundreds, perhaps 400, Western men sadly wounded on all the floors. Had nothing to eat. I carried a basket of crackers and gave two apiece as far as they went and had some pails of coffee. They had had no food that day and there was none for them. I saw them again at ten o'clock at night. They had had nothing to eat. A great number of them were to undergo amputation some time, but no surgeons yet. They had not dippers for one in ten. I saw no straw in any hospital and no mattresses, and the men lay so thick that gangrene was setting in, and in nearly every hospital there has been set apart an erysipelas ward. There is not room in the city to receive the wounded, and those that arrived yesterday mostly were left lying in the wagons all night at the mercy of the drivers. It rained very hard, many died in the wagons, and their companions, where they had sufficient strength, had raised up and thrown them out into the street. I saw them lying there early this morning. They had been wounded two and three days previous, had been brought from the front, and after all this lay still another night without care or food or shelter, many doubtless famished after arriving in Fredericksburg. 
The city is full of houses, and this morning broad parlors were thrown open and displayed to the view of the rebel occupants the bodies of the dead Union soldiers lying beside the wagons in which they perished. Only those most slightly wounded have been taken on to Washington. The roads are fearful, and it is worth the life of a wounded man to move him over them. A common ambulance is scarce sufficient to get through. We passed them this morning, four miles out of town, full of wounded, with the tongue broken or wheels crushed in the middle of a hill, in mud from one to two feet deep. What was to be done with the moaning, suffering occupants, God only knew. Dr. Hitchcock most strongly and earnestly and indignantly remonstrates against any more removals of broken or amputated limbs. He declares it little better than murder, and says the greater proportion of them will die if not better fed and afforded more room and better air. The surgeons do all they can, but no provision had been made for such a wholesale slaughter on the part of any one, and I believe it would be impossible to comprehend the magnitude of the necessity without witnessing it. Clara Barton knew these matters better in 1863 than she did at the beginning of 1862, but she knew something about them when she reached her father's bedside, and he entered intelligently and with sympathy into the recital of her story. He had been a soldier, and he understood exactly the conditions which she described. Her old friend, Colonel DeWitt, formerly a member of Congress from her home district, also appreciated what she had to say. On a day when her father was able to be left, she went with Colonel DeWitt to Boston to call on Governor John A. Andrew. She had much to tell him about conditions and life in the hospitals, and also something concerning leaks which she knew to be occurring in Washington and vicinity, and of treasonable organizations operating close to the capital, in constant communication with the enemy. A few days after this call, the Washington papers contained an account of the arrest of twenty-five or thirty secessionists at Alexandria, and the disclosure of just such a leak and plot as she had related to Governor Andrew. Sunday Chronicle, March 2nd, 1862. Important Arrests at Alexandria. Quite a sensation was produced in Alexandria on last Thursday evening by the arrest of some twenty-five or thirty alleged secessionists who are charged with being concerned in a secret association for the purpose of giving aid and comfort to the rebels. The conspiracy, it seems, was organized under the pretended forms of a relief association and comprised all the treasonable objects of affording relief to the enemy. It is further stated that a fund was obtained 
from rebel sympathizers for the purpose of supporting the families of soldiers in the service of the Confederate States on the identical plan of the Noble Relief Commission of Philadelphia, established with such different motives. It has also been engaged in the manufacture of rebel uniforms, which were distributed among the subordinate female associations. The purpose of the plotters was also to furnish arms and munitions of war. A considerable quantity has been discovered packed for shipment, consisting of knapsacks and weapons. Letters were found acknowledging the receipt through the agency of the Association of Rifles and Pistols in Richmond. Among the papers secured are many letters implicating persons heretofore unsuspected. The parties were brought to this city on Friday and lodged in the old Capitol prison. As they passed along the avenue under the guard of soldiers, they appeared to be quite indifferent as to their fate and the enormity and baseness of the crime with which they are charged. The majority of them presented a very respectable appearance and were followed to jail by an anxious crowd of men and boys. Clara Barton asked her father his opinion of the feasibility of her getting to the front. He did not discourage the idea. He knew his daughter and believed her capable of accomplishing what she set out to do. Moreover, he knew the American soldier. He felt sure that Clara would be protected from insult and that her presence would be welcome to the soldiers. Having thus been favorably introduced to Governor Andrew, and her story of the secret operations of secessionists near Washington having been confirmed, she felt that she could write the governor and ask him for permission to go to the very seat of war. She had been sending supplies to Roanoke and Newburn, North Carolina, and she wished very much that, as soon as her father should have passed away, she might be permitted to go with her supplies and perform her own work of distribution. From her father's bedside, she wrote the following letter to Governor Andrew. North Oxford, March twentieth, 1862 To His Excellency John A. Andrew, Governor of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Governor Andrew will perhaps recollect the writer as the lady who waited upon him in company with Honorable Alexander DeWitt to mention the existence of certain petitions from the officers of the Massachusetts regiments of volunteers relating to the establishment of an agency in the city of Washington. With the promise of your excellency to look after the leak came a lessening of my fears, and the immediate discovery of the truly magnificent rebel organization in Alexandria and the arrest of 25 of the principal actors, including the Purchasing Committee, brought with it not only entire satisfaction, but a joy I had scarce known in months. 
since September, I had been fully conscious in my own mind of the existence of something of this kind, and in October attempted to warn our relief societies, but in the absence of all proof, I must perforce say very little. I should never have brought the subject before you again, only that I incidentally learned that our excellent Dr. Hitchcock has taken back from Roanoke other papers relating to the same subject, which will doubtless be laid before you, and, as I have an entirely different boon to crave, I find it necessary to speak. I desire your Excellency's permission to go to Roanoke. I should have proffered my request weeks earlier but I am called home to witness the last hours of my old soldier father, who is wearing out the remnant of an oak and iron constitution, seasoned and tempered in the wild wars of Mad Anthony. His last tale of the red man is told, a few more sons, and the old soldier's weary march is ended. Honorably discharged, he is journeying home. With this, my highest duties close, and I would fain be allowed to go and administer comfort to our brave men who peril life and limb in defense of the priceless boon the fathers so dearly won. If I know my own heart, I have none but right motives. I ask neither pay nor praises simply a soldier's fare and the sanction of your excellency to go and do with my might whatever my hands find to do in general burnside's noble command are upwards of forty young men who in former days were my pupils i am glad to know that somewhere they have learned their duty to their country and have come up neither cowards nor traitors I think I am safe in saying that I possess the entire confidence and respect of every one of them. For the officers, their signatures are before you. If my requests appear unreasonable and must be denied, I shall submit, patiently though sorrowfully, but trusting, hoping better things. I beg to submit myself with the highest respect Yours truly, Clara H. Barton. End of chapter 12, part 2.